welcome to the Girl Tries Life podcast where we show you that women are capable of achieving incredible things when you put in some serious effort. Now today on the podcast, I am super pumped to be joined by Michelle Elman of Scarred Not Scared. If you are in sort of the body confidence, body positivity community, you will likely have heard of Michelle Elman. As I said, her Instagram handle is called Scarred Not Scared because having had 15 surgeries in the space of 20 years, Michelle actually began sharing her experience using the hashtag Scarred Not Scared uh, and in July 2015 posted her first bikini picture online addressing the belief that people with scars can't wear bikinis. Within hours, the image had gone viral and it was featured in over 60 publications around the world. And it's kind of launched her into this conversation about body confidence. So Michelle is a has been a body confidence coach. She is a speaker. She has done this fantastic TED, TEDx talk on body confidence. So I will link to all of that in today's show notes. And, you know, she's written a book, she does a podcast, she's on YouTube, she basically does all the things, which I will link to in today's show notes. So Michelle and I dive deep on, first of all, what her journey to body positivity and body confidence has been. And she breaks it down for, you know, if you're someone that considers yourself body positive for everyone else, she talks about how you can actually start to embrace body confidence because they're two different things, which I didn't really realize. But as soon as Michelle explained it, it made total sense to me. She talks about the difference between coaching and therapy. So if that's something that you're you're looking at, she can really describe that. We dive deep into how to nourish um, hunger that you've got in your life when it's not necessarily a physical hunger, but you use food in order to comfort yourself. She talks about her, her training in NLP, and we also dive deep into her book, Am I Ugly?, and what she hopes that people will take away from it. Now, I'm super pumped because... As of when I'm recording this, I'm actually just a few days away from leaving for the UK. But when you're listening to this, I will be in the UK and will have purchased some copies, hard hard cover copies of Michelle's book, Am I Ugly? And I'm going to be giving away a copy to a very lucky listener from the UK. So... If you want to win a copy of Michelle's book, Am I Ugly? Even if you already have one, maybe this is a book that you can give to a friend of yours. What I want you to do is go and find me on Instagram at stresslessladies. So Victoria Smith, and you can find me at stresslessladies. And you will see a you know, in my feed, a picture of me holding up the book and the giveaway. So I'm going to be posting that today, January 10th, as you're listening to this. And by... Within 48 hours, so Saturday the 12th, I will be giving away that book. So it has to be someone within the UK and follow the instructions on the post. You just need to like it. And I want you to tag another gal in your life that you believe to be absolutely gorgeous inside and out. I want to spread this body positive, body confident love. So let's do that. And then you can win a copy of Michelle's book and I will be posting it before I actually leave the UK on the 14th. So I'm, I'm super excited about that. And I get to get my hands on a copy of it myself. So I'm overly pumped. Okay. Now, the Girl Tries Life podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. You've had the holiday season and maybe you spent a lot of money. Maybe you did a lot of things, but maybe 
it's a really great opportunity for us to give back. So it's the beginning of a whole new year, 2019, and ATB has a great program called ATB Cares. So they make it easy for all Albertans to support the causes that they care about, and your charity of choice receives 100% of your donation through the site, and ATB will match 15% of every dollar donated to Alberta charities to an annual limit of almost a quarter of a million dollars. So that's kind of huge. So if you're interested in that, go to atbcares.com. And I also want to talk to you really quickly about another podcast in the Alberta Podcast Network. I've talked to you guys about the Podcast Network before. Some, you know, we've got sports, we've got entertainment, we've got everything. Um, But fun fact, the founder of our podcast network, Karen Unland, has her own podcast with her daughter called That's a Thing. Um, So she kind of basically talks with her daughter about, you know, things and popular culture and like, is that really a thing? And it's, they have these really interesting conversations. So I want to point you to a recent episode where they're actually talking about YouTube. So it's called The Fatal Flaws of YouTube. And it's the second part of a conversation where they have, they basically examine YouTube and her daughter zooms in and zooms back out again on what is wrong with her generation's main source of information and entertainment, but why we keep watching anyways. So it was really an interesting conversation. So I will point you there. Today's show notes can be found at girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast forward slash nine four because guys, it's episode number 94. Now, the last thing I want to give you a quick update on before we head into this episode is, I don't know if you've heard, I don't know if you are a longtime listener of the podcast or of the work that I do, but for me, I have decided that you know, 2019 is just not the year of, it is not the year about stressing about my weight or about, you know, achieving a big goal and running a marathon or doing any of those things or aiming for that promotion. When I look at the women in my life, most of us are overwhelmed. (laughs) Like It's just a fact. We have massively long to-do lists. We have so many different things going on. We self-overload. We are just stressed. I don't know a woman in my life that doesn't say I'm super busy. And so I have decided that 2019 is the year that I resolve my New Year's resolution to stress less. So if this is something that kind of resonates with you, if you feel a little overwhelmed at times, if you feel a little stressed, whether that's about your home life, your work, your body, your money situation, any of the things then I really hope that you join me on my little journey. So what I'm going to be doing is I will be sending out weekly newsletters to those who resolve to stress less with really tangible tips, tools, resources to help you do that. Now, as a coach, I'm not giving you everything all at once because I know that realistically, if you overwhelm someone with information, you don't do anything about it. But if you sign up for the newsletter, you're going to get these little tidbits that you can really uh, reinforce on a weekly basis. So learn something new, try something new, make it a habit, add on, add on, add on. And all of these things, when I say add on, it sounds like I'm adding more to your to-do list. That's not what this is about at all. It's about helping you figure out how to let go of things, how to take things off your to-do list, how to be more calm and relaxed. And if you do sign up for the newsletter, one of the things that you're going to be getting is my sort of cheat sheet on 10 things that you can do to reduce your stress today. (laughs) Not something, you know, that is going to take you a lot of time. The strategies you can do today to reduce your stress, as well as a stress reduction meditation. So 
the way to sign up for this, the easiest thing to do again is to go to Instagram. You're already going there anyway to enter this giveaway, right? Right. And then just click, click on the link in my profile. And at the very top, there's a little button that says resolve to stress less in 2019. So click on that link, you will get my newsletter, and then you will get all of these resources on a weekly basis. And you know what I would also love you to do when you get that first newsletter is hit reply and tell me what is the biggest kind of stressor, or if you could take this one thing off of your plate or change this one thing about your overwhelmed life, what it would be. Because I want to gear the content of this newsletter exactly towards what you ladies need. I have some ideas. I've been overwhelmed and stressed myself. If you know you sign up, you'll get my story. You'll understand it exactly. But um, I want to make sure that I'm giving you what you need, that I'm helping you out with your scenario. So the best way to do that is to hit reply or just to message me on Instagram, honestly. However you want to get in touch, I would love to hear from you. So without further ado, let's head over to the episode with Michelle and she drops some serious wisdom about how we can become more body confident individuals. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us on the podcast. We're so excited to have you. Oh, thanks for having me on. So for anyone that doesn't know who you are, and I mean, obviously, we will be sending them to your Instagram and your webpage, but can you describe your journey to body positivity? Yeah, so I I guess where I tend to start is the fact that I've had 15 surgeries, a brain tumor, a puncture intestine, and I've scrubbed about a fifth of my brain, and I live with a condition called hydrocephalus which I know sounds really overwhelming, but it means I have scars all over my body. And that was my main body confidence issue growing up because I had those surgeries from the age of one all the way up from 19. And it was a body insecurity that not only do people not talk about, but you just generally don't see. It's not even, or at least when I started in body positivity, it wasn't even in that space. And how I got into it was through the body confidence side where I started working on myself and uh, like throughout my teenage years, I finally became more confident in my own body. And then when I graduated, I was like, I want, I want to be a psychologist, but I was going through PTSD at the time from my surgeries. And I started looking at new avenues and I found coaching. And when you qualify as a life coach, they're like, well, you shouldn't be a life coach because you can't do like, you can't help everyone with life. They should choose a specialty. Yeah. So I was like, well, what am I interested in? And I was like, well, I'm interested in confidence. And then over time, I was like, actually, all I care about is body confidence. And at that time, I started a business Instagram to share my coaching. And body positivity wasn't even a thing, but it was this small, small community on Instagram. Um, and I discovered it through that. And then about six months into all of this, I mentioned to a client that I had some scars on my stomach. And she was like, why is this not on your website? And I was like, why would it be on my website? On my <laughs> website is about, like, it's for you, like, for you to find me, but not really about me. Like, why would I write about myself? Like, in the about me section, it was all my qualifications, obviously, but I wasn't exactly going to, like, list my life story. And she was like, no, it just really helps, like, that to know that the person giving me advice about body confidence has gone through something as well. So I was like, okay, maybe I should start talking about it. But I didn't want it to be close to my coaching. I wanted it as a separate thing. So I posted it as a social media campaign under the name Scarred Not Scared, which was a different username. But I just used the hashtag Scarred Not Scared at the time. 
and it went viral. And then it kind of got a bit of like, well, it kind of went on a journey of its own yeah. <laughs> where it overtook my coaching. And now I don't do any individual coaching anymore. And I'm a writer, a speaker, a social media person, whatever you call that nowadays. And I do all my coaching via my platforms. Isn't that incredible that one little comment from a client led to this huge change in your life? I mean, I feel like that's just my life in general. Like my life is one, like being rejected from something or the fact that like, thank God I got PTSD because otherwise I would have trained to be a psychologist and I would have got into the master's and the PhD to get qualified. But because of the PTSD, I went into coaching instead. And the coaching only happened because I randomly was bored one day and was like, let's look up three coach courses in London today. And there was a free course on coaching. So I was like, cool, let me try that. Yeah, that's nuts. And it's all these like small, small moments in hindsight. It's like light bulb moments. But yeah. at the time, it was like just a coincidence. Yeah. So as you were saying, the body confidence or body positive community online was really small when you started. It's definitely grown. Yeah. And with it growing, it brings all these misperceptions and myths about it. Are there certain misperceptions that you like wish people were more clear on that you'd like to correct? The main one is the difference between body confidence and body positivity. So I hear all the time people going, oh, I can't be body positive, I hate, my, I hate my size or whatever. That doesn't make sense. That's not, like, factually correct. Like, you're, you can't be body confident, you hate your size, makes sense. Body positivity is a political movement. It's whether you believe all bodies are uh, equal, all bodies should be represented, and you want to, like, get involved in the fighting of, like, people being oppressed for what their body looks like or facing discrimination because of what they look like. Body confidence is the individual confidence level. And so that's what people are talking about when they're like, I can't be confident overnight. And I, I, and this is the thing where, like, in the community, it gets so miscommunicated because it's like we're not saying be confident in your body overnight. We're saying choose to be body positive. And that means being inclusive. That's being represented. That's about being, like, stop body shaming. That is body positivity. When it comes to your individual confidence level, that's a separate conversation. And sometimes they're the same thing. But you can be body positive without being body confident. And you can be body confident without being body positive. Okay, that makes it so much clearer for me. Because one of my questions was, like, what do you say to individuals who are body positive for everyone else but struggle to embrace it for themselves? So what you're saying then is that you can be body positive and still have your own issues and not be body confident. Yes, and I believe body. if you're a body positive, if you can see the beauty in other people's bodies and you learn to stop judging other people's bodies, I think that will massively impact your body confidence. But sometimes it's not that way. I mean, look at the people who... I mean, a lot of the celebrities are a good example, like the plus-size celebrities. They'll love their body. They love what they look like. They're confident in their body. But when it comes to someone who might be two sizes bigger than them, they'll be like, that's not healthy. And there are other people like that. Um, and on the other flip side, I think this is the majority, that majority of people are body positive, but not body confident. And what I tend to say to those people is, if you can see the beauty in other people's bodies, you are closer to seeing the beauty in yourself. And that is a great building step to, the, to body, body confidence. Yeah. Are there certain things you tell people to like 
aside from that, start doing or stop doing to become more body confident? Like I know you've talked about brushing your teeth naked and which sounds like not a big thing, but I have tried it and I'm like, okay, this is different. (laughs) Are you you willing to like go on a journey with me right now? What came up when you did that? Uh, Definitely. What did you discover? I discovered how rarely I am naked. Yeah. I also discovered, I mean, I've had two babies, so, like, it it was also a bit of, like, I don't know that I've really spent time with my naked body since having babies, and it just feels so different, and it was, like, having a lot of, like, this is not what it used to be like, so having a lot of comparison, not comparison to other people, but comparison to what my body once was. It was, it was a challenge. So <laughs> the reason why I asked that is because, especially that tip that I give out, it's turned into a bit of a clickbait thing, especially because I said it on um, one of women, the biggest yeah. TV shows. It, yeah, Loose Women, one of the biggest TV shows in London. And it got turned into a very clickbaity thing. But I'm like, no, here's the thing. It's not going to be an overnight thing, but it will, like, you are now conscious of every single thing you thought in, whilst doing it. You are aware of the fact that you don't spend enough time naked. So then you can be like, well, maybe I need to spend more time naked. Um, you're aware of the fact that it's more the change in your body than the, your body itself. So you changing after pregnancy. Um, and what I say to people around that is it's like going through a breakup where, you know, when people break up with their partner and they're like, being single is awful. And I'm like, no, this is not you being single. This is you grieving a breakup. It's the same thing with your body. You're going through a change. It's not about the fact that being in your new body is a bad thing. It's about the fact that the adjustment is the difficult part. The transition period is a difficult part. And that's what you're going through. You're essentially going through the breakup with your old body. And that's painful. But living in your new body is not painful. Being single isn't painful. But we often equate the two, which is why single people are like, it's awful being single. And I'm like, you're still grieving? That's a separate emotion. That's really interesting, yeah. I use those tips to make people aware of the inner voice because when you're looking in the mirror, it's like, first of all, how many times have we stopped with our naked body? Like, actually just stopped and been silent. That's a new thing in itself. Second of all, you're not the only person who doesn't spend any time naked. Like, we have become a society that avoids not only being naked, but avoids mirrors. Like, we think the solution is, if I don't see a mirror, I won't get insecure. But you're, you're going to have reflective surfaces around you for the rest of your life. You can't immunize yourself from having a reflective surface around you. And what? so anytime you walk past the door and you see your reflection, you're going to suddenly be triggered because you've not seen a mirror for the last 10 years. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me. You're protecting yourself when actually you could just deal with the issue at hand. But other tips that I give is have a ritual of like one of my friends one of my followers actually said this to me that they have a ritual of massaging their like when they put their moisturizer on they turn it into like massaging their body and like touching their body so that you don't pinch your fat you're like touching your body in a like loving way rather than a rough way i'm really big on changing the language around our body so if you're a person who exercises stop saying like burn that fat kill that workout it's very aggressive language towards our body and I, I work out, but it's nothing to do with this self-hatred or um, trying to change my body. It's out of love. And we need to change, the, like flip the script when it comes to that kind of conversation. I also tell people that 
we do need to know what our body looks looks like, which is why the naked thing I think is important because I think you ju- we just don't have relationships with our body anymore. Yeah. No, for sure. And it's what's interesting is this is bringing up for me something I didn't realize is that like I once upon a time was a synchronized swimmer and I mean this is when I was like 11, 12, 13 and I remember in the early days having no qualms about changing in the change room like just you know taking my swimsuit off putting my clothes on and yet I remember that as the years went on all the girls were sort of going into the bathroom to change or going into like the little changing stalls they didn't want to change out in the open area and I remember that starting to change how I got dressed and it's like well if they're ashamed of their bodies I should be like it's it's you know you know, it's so strange you say that because that happened in my school too. There were, so there were open changing rooms and there were only two cubicles in these open changing rooms and no one would use them around 13, 14. We hit about 15, 16 and suddenly like people would be queuing for the two cubicles rather than changing in the open space. And I remember at a certain point being like, wait, should I be? going into those cubicles as well and here's the thing that i think is most empowering about all of this is it like in that changing room with you and with me we learned that that yeah. was taught to us even if it was implicitly taught to us by something that wasn't said but just like by a behavior that was happening we were taught that which means we can unlearn it and that's what all of this is about here's the thing like most babies are born with self-love that well, not most babies all babies um, and they're born naturally loving themselves. If you show most babies a mirror, they like go up to it, <laughs> yeah. kiss it, and like love their reflection. But we need to get back to that place because that's how we all naturally are. Um, and I find it quite hopeful to know that we're going back to a place we've already been than trying to discover this new side to ourselves. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to try that moisturizing technique and all of our listeners yeah. should try it as well. It's really good. It takes some time out of your day as well. Like if you do it while doing mindfulness as well, I um, like five minutes at the end of your evening, just not thinking about anything and just being in the moment and spending time with your body. Because I think we also, and this is very much taught through diet, disassociate from our bodies during the day. If your body has ever not ever been an unsafe space, so for me it's obviously through surgery, but like if you are a fatter woman, in society, it might not be a safe space. What we've been taught our entire lives is to just associate from our bodies. And so we're not connected to our hunger signals. We're not connected to any of our emotions that live in our body. Um, and I think things like moisturizing your body make you spend time with your body. And it's something that like even walking or going to the gym can help with. But as long as you use it, to um, spend time actually feeling what your body feels like when it's moving rather than focusing on how many calories you've lost or focusing on whether you've burnt off that chocolate bar. But if you actually like, I don't know, the next time you go on a run, the next time you go for a walk, go for a walk to the supermarket or whatever it is, but actually like feel your leg picking up, feel what your breath is like, those kind of things, it helps you tune in back, like tune in back to your body, if that makes sense. Uh, that's not the right way to phrase it but you get what I mean (laughs) oh absolutely and it's funny because I think we're so we're in this society that's very like we got to be productive we got to do two things at once and I found that like I would be like walking somewhere and listening to music and yet when I stopped doing that or when I stopped listening to podcasts and walking I was very much more 
nourished by it and felt, yeah, like you're saying, mindful of my body. And it's, but it does take that unlearning of like, got to do two things at once, got to multitask, got to all those things. Well, the problem is we live in a society that glamorizes being busy. And so if you are not busy or you are anything less than stressed, you aren't doing enough. You aren't being enough. And this is what is, I personally believe, leading to like the mental health crisis in our in, in the whole world, to be honest, not just my country and your country. Yeah. But um, it's the fact that we have this belief that unless you're having a breakdown, you can't take a break. And why do we have to get to that extreme point in order to take our mental health seriously? Yeah. And if we were actually more tuned into our body, we would know when our body needs to rest and needs um, time away from work. But we're not listening to our body. We're literally running our bodies to exhaustion. And then we're having a breakdown, whether it's mental or physical. And then we listen. It's kind of like unless you're actually like ill in bed with a fever, you don't stop. Yeah. And I think we're we treat our bodies so badly in general no wonder we feel bad about our bodies yeah no for sure well it's interesting what you're saying about not listening to our bodies like we have become so out of tune with them and and this ties into it's not so much about body confidence but it just about connection to our body we seem to have a problem a lot of people with understanding what needs nourishing in our body like and so many of us are using food for that, which can be absolutely fine at times, but sometimes it's what we're looking for is we're needing food, uh, sorry, we're needing comfort or friendship or safety or we're feeling lonely. So when what really needs to be nourished is not a physical hunger, what do you suggest for people? Because I know so many people that just do not want to sit with their feelings, like they'd rather do anything but. Well, I think it's about, I think the problem with sitting with your feelings is the fact that society, especially with women, has made our emotions so unacceptable. There's a really common misconception around the fact that women are allowed to feel, but men are not. Yeah. But actually, that's not true. Men aren't allowed to feel, men aren't allowed to cry, men aren't allowed to be sad, they're allowed to be angry, that's the only emotion they're allowed but women are allowed to have it. We just don't have it without being penalized. Because if you think about the fact that um, if a woman like gets emotional, it's like, oh, she's being a woman. So yeah, in a, in a sense, they're allowed to feel it. But there's always it always comes with, oh, she's being emotional. Like it's um, an indication of her intelligence. It's an indication of whether she is capable of doing her job. So we're still being penalized for it. And we're still saying that, you can't have emotions whilst also being logical and rational. And that having um, emotions means you're hormonal or means that you're being crazy, which, frankly, I think are forms of gaslighting. But if we actually yeah. normalize all regular emotions, and I even hate the fact that we call them negative emotions, like anger, sadness, fear, and guilt and shame. They're not negative emotions because anger, sh anger, show anger, for example, shows you that your boundaries have been crossed. Yeah. Like sadness is a normal human emotion that if you didn't have, you would be classed as a psychopath or a sociopath. Yeah. Like if you didn't feel sad when you lost a loved one or whatever, that would be classed as a psychopath or one of them. I get them mixed up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but these aren't negative emotions. They are emotions designed to be temporary to show you something in your life. And if you actually use it and you process it, they are temporary. It's only when we bury them and we suppress them and we don't let ourselves feel it because we become so scared of our emotions. It's like, 
you're you have fear of the fear or you're angry about the anger like we build on top of the emotions by having emotions about our emotions if you get what i mean whereas if you actually just process the anger rather than being like why am i angry i shouldn't be angry so like one of the examples is like a lot of people when someone dies get angry and they don't understand it they're like why am i angry it's not that person's fault they died it's not my fault they died so why am i suddenly angry they spend so long questioning the anger and potentially getting angry about the anger that they've not actually just accepted the fact that they are angry and that's okay the thing i compare it to is thirst like we never sit there and go why am i thirsty i just had another cup i just had another i just had a cup of water an hour ago why am I thirsty? We don't sit there um, and question our thirst. We just listen to it because it's never been demonized. And apart from drinking enough water, it's never been equated to morality. Because if you think about both uh, hunger and also, neg- I'll call them negative emotions, but emotions, yeah. um, those are always equated to morality. So the more, most morale people are the people who eat less when it comes to hunger um, or the people who have the magic ability to ignore their hunger signals, and also the people who have the least anger, the least sadness, are praised in our society. But that's what's leading to people not listening to their hunger. And it's basically devaluing what your body is designed to do. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the actual function of your body, is to tell you when it's hungry. And yet we're praising those people who have never listened to their body and think a tracker or an app or a, what are they called? Yeah, the fitness trackers are smarter than our bodies are. And they just aren't. Like yeah. this calories in, calories out thing is so silly if you think about the fact that every single person knows a friend who can eat what they like and they don't gain weight. Yeah. And I'm like, but we never think about it vice versa. We all have that thin friend. But when we come to thinking about fat people, and this is what I believe drives this not listening to our body, is this fear of fat. Um, Not just fat, fat phobia towards fat people, but the fear of fat itself. That's what drives eating disorders. That's what drives um, us overriding our hunger signals, is us thinking we know better than our actual body and, and us questioning our signals as opposed to listening to them. Yeah. So you're saying the first kind of stages is like acknowledge the feeling it's okay like you're you're allowed to feel whatever you're feeling and then yeah and then as much as you can tune into your signals like is it physical is it something yeah. else you're looking and for it, ultimately if you get a better relationship with both you won't confuse them as much mm-hmm. you won't think think it's hunger when it's actually sadness you won't think it's sadness when it's actually hunger and that's where you start having more clarity between them and if we stop demonizing healthy and unhealthy food and we start listening to our actual cravings then that's what will also help in terms of I think so much of this emotional eating happens because it's like we've been deprived because if you think about it, all this emotional eating it's always made the foods that are classed as unhealthy but actually if we just let ourselves have that food without feeling guilty for it they would be less tempting yeah because what makes a, uh, like food the most delicious is actually restricting yourself from it. Like when you don't let yourself have cookies, suddenly all you want is cookies yeah. and all you're thinking about all day is cookies. When actually the healthiest relationship with food is, as I said, 
if you related it to water, when you're not thinking, when, <laughs> when you're not thirsty, you are thinking about water. Yeah. That's how we should be thinking about food. Is that only when we're um, hungry should we be thinking about food? Only when we're tired do we think about sleep. It's the same. Yeah. But we've just messed up our relationship with food and also our body that it becomes a lot more of a confusing decision than it needs to be. Yeah. No, for sure. I want to move a bit into your training here. Can you explain for listeners what NLP is? So it's called Neuro Linguistic Programming. And honestly, it's the thing I hate most explaining because (laughs) it's really hard to explain. But essentially, it is the belief that... So with coaching, with NLP, with... Um, I also do timeline therapy and all those kinds of things. The difference between coaching and therapy is that coaching is forward focused and therapy is the past and fixing why you do that and the understanding behind it. The principles behind coaching is that you don't need to understand why something happens to change it and that you work towards building the future. And so with therapy, you ask what's wrong with you. And with coaching, you ask what do you, but what do you want instead? And that's the two differences. And NLP is just the techniques and the, the model of thinking behind it. So um, there are like 12 presuppositions in NLP. One of them is like people are not their behaviors. Another one is that people are doing the best they can with the resources and the knowledge they have at a time. Um, and it's just very much a way of thinking and it revolution, revolutionized the way I thought about everything because it's just quite new and it's still very difficult to explain, but yeah. it's just a different type of... The same way that most, most people don't know the difference between cognitive behavioral therapy and psychodynamic psychotherapy, which are two traditional models of psychology, it's kind of like a different model, but it's in coaching rather than therapy. Yeah. Okay, so it's really just the framework that you use for your coaching, for the types of questions, what you're looking for, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So as a coach, you know, we often say that, like, to to be a coach, you still need to be getting coached. (laughs) And I I know you work with Michelle Zelly, and I I love your videos on, like, ask my my coach anything kind of thing. Do you ever find, like, how easy is it for you to self-coach yourself around challenges? Or, like, what does that process look like? Because there's often times where we know things intuitively and we know what the quote-unquote right thing or best action would be to take. And yet, you know, we're humans. So the main thing that I've um, learned at the moment is that I'm – the difference in the last four years where I've started being coached as well as coaching other people is to be really aware of when you're telling yourself the story. Because as I said, we justify emotions rather than actually just feeling them. But in order to justify them, we tell a long elaborate story about why it's okay to feel that. When actually, if you just felt it, you wouldn't need to tell this long story. (laughs) So like, an example is, let's say I was losing my followers and I was like, my, my whole account was disappearing and I go, well, the reason why I'm worried is because I'm losing my income. That to me, I know is a story. That is not anything about why I'm actually worried about losing followers. Like when you lose followers, you also lose, like my highest values in work are appreciation. So yeah. if, 
if I did my work, I don't need money. I don't need, I don't need acknowledgement. So like awards don't really fulfill me. If I won an award, I wouldn't really care. But someone sending me a DM saying thank you, that means a lot to me. And that's just because of my values. And knowing your values is a huge thing when it comes to coaching yourself. Mm-hmm. But me telling myself it's about the money because that's a more um, understandable um like if I said that to a friend, oh, I'm worried about losing money because I'm losing my followers, they would get that more than me saying, oh, I'm feeling underappreciated because uh, because I'm losing my followers, for example. I mean, it's a silly example, but you get what I mean, where we tell ourselves a fake story because the real story is sometimes too close to home. Yeah. And if we know our values, we can be like, hey, look, we don't need either of these stories, to be honest. We can just feel it and we can be sad about it or we can be scared about it or whatever it needs to be. That's where I think, <laughs> I mean, I said to my, my um, life coach the other day, I was like, it's not as much fun anymore to tell yourself these stories because you know you're lying. <laughs> like, <laughs> and that's the, that's the best and worst part about coach, like getting to a certain level of being coached is that you're like, all these stories I used to tell myself aren't fun anymore. Like there was, there's an element of you enjoying your problems and you can't enjoy them anymore because you don't even believe them. Yeah. Like, or when like you create drama because your life has got a little bit boring. I know what I'm doing before I do it now. So I'm like, I know I'm literally just picking a fight because I'm bored. Like I need to not do this. And <laughs> that's the like part of coaching, which I, have benefited from the most but also how I self-coach is I like I'm the only person who is around myself enough that I could be like we're not going to do this before we actually do it so that I don't have a problem to fix I can just not do it and then we don't have a problem in the first place yeah oh that's great so if people are considering like I know you've said therapy is looking back coaching is looking forward and action oriented but if someone's trying to make the decision between like which route to go What's your kind of rationale that you give people for one or the other? So with therapy, I think I needed a certain level of therapy before I could do coaching where I just was so confused why I was doing things. And if you don't have that emotional intelligence and you generally are confused about why you're doing stuff, that's why that's when therapy helps. But the point I got to in therapy was this point where I was like, okay, what next? And that's what I said to my therapist at the time. I was like, what next? I want to move on. And that's the sign you now need coaching, Mm -hmm. is you need to find someone who will help you with your future because what that therapist ended up saying to me is, this is your life. You're just going to have to manage it for the rest of your life. And I was like, no, this is not the kind of mentality that works for me because I personally believe in full recovery when it comes to anything. Um, I think cutting yourself off from the potential of full recovery limits how much you can recover. So when I got told with PTSD, you're never going to fully recover from this, this is your life, that was my signal for me to move away from therapy. And at the time, I didn't know it was to move towards coaching. I just knew therapy wasn't working for me. I can't believe Um, someone said that to you, that like you'll have to live with this for the rest of your life, like as though... Like, even just the concept of taking hope away from someone is so damaging. But this is the thing. A lot of people think it's fact. So there are, like, I would say 50% of psychologists will tell you, you hear it a lot from drinking perspective. Like, you're always going to be an alcoholic. 
Like, that is the thing we hear quite a lot. It's very accepted, especially in AA. It's not like you're never recovered from being an alcoholic. You will be an alcoholic for life. And they think that's a beneficial mentality because it's like you'll always be on the lookout and you'll always be cautious, which, yes, for some people, that might work. For me, it doesn't because I'm like, I'm living in the past and I want to move on. Yeah. Um, And so... For what I tend to tell people is it's not one way of thinking is wrong, one way of thinking is right. It's more the fact that um, you need to find a therapist or coach who has the same mentality as you. And when I was getting frustrated being like, this can't be the rest of my life, she just wasn't understanding that. Um, and now I'm like four years recovered from PTSD, haven't had a thing. Uh, well, I've had... I had a blip where I had one symptom. But again, that's where someone who doesn't believe in full recovery will be like, you aren't fully recovered. But it was like, I had one panic attack on the tube because the tube broke down like for 20 minutes in the middle of it. Anyway. Which is stand like... <laughs> um, and a lot of yeah. people would have a panic attack for that. Like. But also, this was like, uh, I don't know if you know about this, but like this summer there was a heat wave in London and oh. the tube was unbearable as it was in certain tunnels. It was getting up to like 40 degrees. <gasps> um, yeah. And England is not prepared for that kind of weather. And I just started hyperventilating. There, there's a model of thinking that would have been like, that's your PTSD flaring up. And... Then there's the other model of thinking, which is where I lie in being like, that's a normal human reaction to being put in a situation which I was not prepared for. And because I know what caused that, which was I thought about, (laughs) I was thinking about, um, this is really bad, but I was thinking about the terrorist attack in 2005. Was it 2005? Yeah. Um, And I thought about that. Whilst we were closed in the tunnel, and basically your unconscious mind doesn't know the difference between real and imagined. Mm -hmm. And I thought about that for maybe a split second, and that's when I started to panic. And we, this is where I'm like, we need to be so careful about what we think about, because when I say your brain doesn't know the difference between real and imagined, the best way I can explain that is if I started talking about biting into a lemon, and before I even said the word, my mouth started to salivate. Um, and I'm not sure if your mouth is salivating, mm-hmm. but that's because our bodies are reacting to our brains that have already pictured a lemon and us biting into a lemon. Our body has physiologically reacted to it, even though there are no lemons near either of us. I, I don't know if there's a lemon near you. There's not a lemon near me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we've not even needed a stimulus. I've not needed a terrorist attack, but all I needed was the thought of it, and my body reacted as if I was living it. And that's all that went on. And that is a very NLP way of thinking that your unconscious mind, like your thoughts have created the physical reaction. Whereas if you were more traditional psychology, you would be like, that's your PTSD flaring up. You're not recovered. And this will always be a problem for the rest of your life. Whereas with coaching, it's like, no, you thought about something that would scare you. You got scared. Your body got scared. Your body went into adrenaline and went into your nervous system that flares up when you're stressed and literally reacted that way. Your heart started racing faster. And so you associated it with a panic attack because that's the closest thing you have to all of those emotions rushing through your body. Yeah. Interesting. So I want That's an easier way to, sorry, (laughs) that's an easier way to describe NLP is like through an example. If you get what I mean, that like those are the two ways of thinking. No, it's fascinating. Yeah. 
So I want to move quickly on to your book that came out this year, Am I Ugly? Um, we're going to we're going to be giving away a copy to one of uh, the UK followers because we've done so many giveaways in North America that it's time to share the love across the pond. What is your hope that people take away from it? Like if they could only take away two or three key messages, what what is your hope? Um, that that body confidence is a long journey. The reason why I started writing it was because I was getting so frustrated with the idea that my short captions on Instagram, and my captions are long, <laughs> but the longest a caption can be are, is 300 words. But even that is short. In how short my journey was, and with all the pretty pictures and everything else, it was message that it was like an overnight journey but what people didn't realize is my account existed only after I had got body confidence if that makes sense yeah so I never showed the times when like I was still hiding my scars because the first ever photo of me on my page apart from like one no makeup selfie was the first ever bikini picture of me that I've ever even like the first time I've ever worn a bikini let alone take a picture in it um, and that is what I think made me write the book was because I wanted it to show you that it was these almost what I spoke about at the beginning, which is all these like small moments, which in hindsight are light bulb moments. But at the time was me deciding to not talk negatively about my body yeah. or was me deciding that I wasn't going to join in with the diet conversations around the lunchtime table. Like, that's all it was. It was a small decision. It's not these, like, massive moments. But they build up, and they make such a difference over time. Yeah, and then you look back, and you're like, wow, nine years ago, I decided to stop talking negatively about my body and look how my life has changed as a result. Yeah. And you can't even believe that one small decision would have impacted you, not only for that long, because we make decisions all the time and then go back on it like two seconds later, but also that it turned into all of this because my 15-year-old self wouldn't have believed I had a job on Instagram, first of all, because Instagram didn't exist. Yeah. And I remember one of my school lectures being about careers and the last sentence he said was a job you're going uh, 90 of you are going to have a job in the future that doesn't even exist right now and that's literally what ended up happening yeah um is i have a job that didn't exist five years ago let yeah. alone 10 that's so nuts yeah yeah okay well i'm so excited to read it myself and for one of our listeners to get a copy of it that it's going to be fantastic so Thank I want, you so much. I want to move into um, the five questions that we ask all of our guests. They've changed slightly over time, but um, I work as a stress reduction coach. So my, I'm always fascinated with our listeners into, like, what are your go-to methods for handling stress? How do you cope? Uh, first of all, I turn my phone off because <laughs> whatever's coming, like, I if I already am at capacity and then someone asks me something else that I need for me, I'm like... Like, I'll go into shutdown mode. And if I get overwhelmed, it's like the day has over, might as well not do anything. So I try to preempt that by being like, okay, we have like 10 things to do right now. So turn off your phone, get them done. And then when you turn your phone on and like all the emails come pouring in, they're like, you need to do this and that. I've got the, the capacity to actually deal with it. But also breathing. I really control my breathing because as soon as you get stressed, your breathing changes. And so when once you relax even though you've relaxed in your head if your breathing is still stressed 
you're still telling your body that you are stressed. Yeah. So that's another thing I control. And the third thing that's massively really impacted me is making sure that I had enough sleep. I used to be one of those people who felt really guilty if I slept in or slept a certain number of hours or woke up late or whatever it was. I'm just the kind of person who needs like 10 hours sleep yeah. and I can't function otherwise. And so much of my job is dependent on creativity that literally like I could stare at a page for an hour and try to write and write nothing. Yeah. Or I can literally just like have a nap for an hour, wake up and I'll be able to write it all in 10 minutes. Yeah. So that's, well, that's me understanding myself better, but also me stopping um, feeling guilty for needing more rest than the average person. Oh, as a mom of a new baby, I'm like, I get as much oh, sleep as you can. No, no, no. Yeah. I just, I say to everybody who's like, oh, even considering babies, I'm like, just sleep in. Just enjoy all the sleep you can get now. Because, yeah, you don't realize until, yeah, it affects your creativity yeah. or your mental health or anything how critical sleep is. Well, I was on a panel at the weekend and it was a Christmas panel. It was all about how to, like, manage Christmas. And someone said, oh, make sure you, like, sleep enough. And then the, another person on the panel was like, yeah, you shouldn't be saying that to the moms in the audience. They're going to have <laughs> excitable kids, like, running, like, wanting to see Santa first thing in the morning, like, opening pres Christmas presents. Like, it's not that easy to just lie in. <laughs> but you you find your new ways. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> another big theme of this podcast is about that succeed or fail, it's all about putting in the effort. So what in your life are you glad that you gave yourself permission to try, even if it didn't work out the way you hoped it would? I, this is a bit of a cop-out because it turned out to be a success. But my book, honestly, is that I, it start, I started writing this book when I was 19 years old in hospital, uh, genuinely thinking I was going to die. And all I could think about was the fact that my whole life would have just amounted to studying. I would have gone from primary school to secondary school to university without doing anything with my life and I wanted something permanent to leave in the world but the only problem was I was hugely insecure about the way I write English was always my worst subject um, I wanted to do English at A level got told like you're not good enough and so I never took English and I every time I wrote I got really in school so it was literally two years of me writing 2,000 words and deleting 2,000 words and then I pitched it in America first because body positivity wasn't a thing here and half of the story is based in Los Angeles. So I, um, like all my surgeries are based in Los Angeles. So I pitched it in America, got an agent really quickly, but got rejection after rejection for literally a year. Mm -hmm. And just so happens, I went to someone's book launch in England, the first ever book launch I've ever been to. And, and the only reason I went was because I was in this person's book. And the only reason I was writing in this person's book was because I emailed her one day randomly because I followed her for five years. Like, when you talk about those, like, light bulb moments that happen by coincidence, this is genuinely, like, the story of my book. It's all these, like, I happened to send an email to a really popular YouTuber who happened to ask me two weeks later to write a section in the book, who then invited me to a book launch where I met an author um, who told me that my, like, agent wasn't a good agent essentially and yeah. um, got home that evening and was like I'm gonna dump my agent that author must be right she's published six books before the age of 30 she must be right dumped uh my agent that evening like within an hour of getting home which was probably a really irresponsible decision because if you <laughs> ask any author like the 
Well, the thing that had been stopping me is the fact that every author tells you getting an agent is the hardest part. Yeah. And so I was like, I, what have I done? I've literally just dumped my agent. And um, an hour later, I was literally, I'd sent out 10 emails to people in the UK, including this author's agent. And it was this author's agent that replied to me by nine o'clock the next morning. And to put it in context, my previous agent had been taking two months to respond to each one of my emails. Oh my <laughs> you God. can imagine when I sent out this email at 10 o'clock at night and I got a reply at nine o'clock in the morning being like, can I please see your full manuscript? And by midday being like, can you come into the office tomorrow? And I was like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. not only do I not have to wait two months for a response, but you want to see me within 24 hours. Um, and that ended up being my agent, who are literally like the best agents in the world. And yeah, so I, that is the greatest story of perseverance I personally yeah. have. <laughs> That's great, though, because I just like you're saying, you battled through insecurity, through rejection, through everything like there is this and it doesn't always work out that way. But there is something about no. giving yourself permission to try and to, to see where it takes you, I think is really powerful. And even when it came out, like just publishing a book doesn't necessarily make it a success. Yeah. And getting my head around the fact that I could have worked three years and called this book to flop and maybe I just got the book deal because of my following or whatever it is, all the stuff that was going on in my head. The it, stories like, you were I telling to... yourself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it was, it, you had to get around yourself around the idea that like even if, it doesn't do well according to other people's opinions or reviews that you accomplish something you worked for three years on. And I'm, I'm not a patient person. So to me, like to persevere for three years at anything, like I'm not even sure I'll ever do it again because it was so painful, but like it, it, it's a nice story now that it has a happy ending. Yeah. Well, I know you love reading, so what's, the, yeah. I, and this might be a really hard one to pick, but what's the most inspiring book you've read in the last couple of years? What's the one you tell all people to read or you give away? Brene Brown. Like yeah. all her books are. So I love Brene Brown so much that I read her first book and then her second and her third book sat on my shelf for two years because I didn't want to finish them too quickly. <laughs> um, so I was like, because I was like, but if I read them all now, then I won't get to enjoy them. So I like was convinced that I had to like spread out all her books. I only read the second and third book once the fourth book was out, because I felt like I had enough books to go. Yeah. But also like, it, it's the kind of book where you read and you reread it until, or at least this is what I do with it, is like reread it, until you've learned, you've actually applied all the lessons to your life. Yeah. And then I move on to the next one. So I think I read Gifts of Imperfection four times. I read Daring Greatly twice and then Rising Strong and then Braving the Wilderness and her latest one, Death Lead. Yeah. Do you know, I also love the audiobook versions because she's just like a mama bear. Yeah, but I need to highlight it. I literally need to like highlight it and know where I could go back to last time. Yeah. So I've, I've got the audiobook of Gifts of Imperfection, but after that, I, like, learned my lesson. It's like, no, this is a highlighting book. <laughs> or it could be both. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> go to sleep listening to an audiobook version yeah. and then highlight in the morning. Exactly. 
What's the best life lesson that you've learned or advice that you've been given? Um, oh, that's a hard one. The best life lesson, I suppose it's just the fact that, like, stop wasting your time. Like, I, like, I mean, it's not even something I got told. It's just something I learned from being in hospital is that, like, time is precious and that you can lose it at any point. You can lose your life at any point. And that this illusion that we all have that we're going to live till 90 isn't guaranteed. And that you want to be able to pack in as much life as possible. And that's why when it comes to things like body confidence and all these things, all these excuses and reasons that we use to limit our lives, I'm like, but is it going to matter in the end? And that's the ultimate context with everything. It's like, is this going to be important when I die? And... I think out of everything, what your body looks like is the most unimportant thing. Like, because your body's not even going to be there. Like, at least if, like, if my book had flopped, it would still exist in the world. But your body, like, can you imagine spending your whole life affecting your body and then it's going to, like, decay anyway? (laughs) (laughs) Like, morbid. But that's what I think about quite a lot is, like, if I'm getting stressed or I'm feeling down, I'm like, well... Is this thing really going to matter once I'm dead? Like, and it's a really morbid way of thinking, but it is quite uh, fitting for someone who's been in hospital since, like, one years old. And seeing people die, like, when you're at such a young age, especially in the children's wards, it really puts context to everything that you do and makes you emphasize the things that are important to you and the things that truly matter. Yeah. Yeah, it's like taking a magnifying glass to it. So the final question, Michelle, is what does it mean to you to live your most vibrant life? Um, I think my most vibrant life is when I'm radiating love. Like I'm, I, and I use the word radiate because it's also me receiving love. And I think you can't radiate anything unless you have it yourself. And I I truly believe that like when it comes to self-love and things like that, you need it first and you can't give it to anyone else until you've helped yourself. And that is me living my most uh, vibrant life is living my life to the fullest in the most loving way I know how. Oh, I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. Wasn't that a fantastic episode? I just, I love Michelle's style, her bluntness, her straightforwardness. It was just, she's just a breath of fresh air. So again, if you want to win a copy of her book and you are in the UK, just head over to Instagram at StresslessLadies, find the post, you'll see me holding up the book, and tag some ladies in your life who you think are absolutely gorgeous inside and out. Spread the body confidence love. And since you're already there over on Instagram, click on the link in my bio and you can sign up and share in my resolve to stress less in 2019. I bet if you're listening to this, I have a feeling you might also maybe share a little bit of that overwhelm that a lot of us ladies tend to do. So I would love to have you along on this journey. It's completely free to sign up. It's just free resources that you'll get on a weekly basis. And uh I hope to make your life a little bit easier. So until next week, have a fantastic week and just take care of yourself. Okay, bye.